Um, the, the, the first of our speakers this morning is uh, Grant McCaskill. Grant uh, is um, the Kirby Lang Chair of New Testament Exegesis at the University of Aberdeen, post he's held since 2015. Um, he was previously in the employ of another Scottish university. Um, Grant uh, is a dear colleague um, and uh, um, the author of a wide-ranging set of books, 2019, a very fruitful year for, for him, just to give you a sense of the range of his interest. Um, uh, uh, a book from Oxford University Press, The New Testament and Intellectual Humility, which is in print now. Um, uh, a book on autism and the church, biblical and theological study. Uh, and a forthcoming book from Baker Academic, I think, later this year, Living in Union with Christ, which builds on some previous work that he had done as well. Um, he's no slouch when it comes to technical issues as well, the Slavonic text of Second Enoch, um, a, a book well beyond my ken, but not beyond his. Um, and uh, the, the work of his thesis, uh, some time ago now, uh, revealed wisdom and incarnated eschatology in ancient Judaism and early Christianity. Um, his paper this morning is called The Idolatrous Self and the Icon, The Possibility of Worship. Um, I, uh, I mentioned to Grant, um, uh, because we're uh, close colleagues, uh, he, occurred, he appeared in one of my dreams last night, which I just thought I'd share with you. Um, <laughs> This, uh, this will give you a sense of how excited my subconscious clearly is about this paper. He, um, he, he was driving a red sports car. He crashed through the front gates of the old uh, King's College uh, building in Aberdeen, drove across the lawn, tearing up the beautiful grass, uh, hopped out the door and said, let's do this. So <laughs> um, with that, um, let's welcome Grant to the microphone. Uh, thanks, Phil. After an introduction like that, the paper can be nothing but disappointing. So, but let's do this. Um, so, uh, first of all, a, a quick apology. I was ill at the end of last week, and the time that I'd hoped to spend finishing and then polishing this paper was uh, devoted to being very sick. So, um, so the paper is neither finished nor polished, um, and I just hope you can live with that. Um, let me preface the paper with an important preamble. I'm not a BART specialist, uh, but I'm a sympathetic and indebted reader who's interested in how we bring together the task of exegesis, that very modern concept, with the task of theology, particularly that of dogmatics. These two tasks are cognate and mutually necessary, but they're not identical. Bringing them together involves a negotiation of the assumptions and decisions that are critical to each and an ongoing process of reflecting on the decisions made within each in the light of the other. The constructive theological task is one that is determinately non-immediate and carefully reflective. Uh, I'm using the term constructive theology without the determined overtones that it has in some scholarship, really just to designate the difficult activity of allowing dogmatics and biblical studies to be properly mutually abrasive. Now, I open with these comments for two reasons. Uh, first, I do so simply to admit that my knowledge of BART is more limited than I would like, and to acknowledge and open myself to the need for loving correction or supplementation by the experts in the audience. Second, and more importantly, I do so to highlight that my goal here is not to evaluate BART's success as a biblical interpreter against a modern standard of exegesis but to reflect on the constructively theological value of his reading. Much of the contemporary appropriation of exegesis for theological ends moves far too immediately from the locality and particularity of the text under analysis to the theological claim. It fails to recognize that the theological task and its methodology identifies the text and its significance differently an identification that regulates the response to the text in pivotal ways. From the early stages of patristic interpretation, the need to ensure that the reading of the local text is regulated by the context of the wider canon of Holy Scripture and controlled by the mystery now revealed, Jesus Christ, is a crucial interpretive principle. Every good heresy, after all, is biblical and can be traced to a proof text. Now, my focus in this paper will be on Bart's understanding of idolatry and the idols, 
which is vital to his understanding of the place of Torah, or Torah, and is inseparable from his understanding of revelation and the human response to it. Bart's thought on these matters develops from his earliest work on Romans uh, to the revised Romans commentaries and through the various dogmatics. The key moves are made between the two Romans commentaries though, with the subsequent developments really constituting refinements and reflections rather than radical changes. My own interest in Bart's treatment of these topics stems from a growing sense that what governs Paul's thought in general, and Romans in particular, is a recognition of the problem of idolatry as something defined not by its objects, but by its subjects. We are constitutionally idolatrous and consequently take the good gifts of God and turn them into idols. The power of the idol and its character as an idol has its origin not in the object, but in the subject. An observation that allows us to acknowledge the goodness of the thing itself as a creature, as a handiwork of God, while affirming the evil in which it participates, though in ways that refuse to give a substance to that evil that it does not deserve. The recognition of that evil, however, is always contingent upon the revelation of Jesus Christ, by which idolatry is exposed for what it is, and the idolater's condition laid bare to its cure. Bart's reflection on these points and their material significance to the activity of the religious self who receives the gift of instruction, Torah, from God, is immensely valuable. But we need to reflect further on Paul's language that suggests substantive, if not total, liberation from the problem of idolatry and real enjoyment of truthful worship through the appointed icon of God, Jesus Christ, and the presence of his spirit by whom hearts and minds are transformed. Now, I want to frame this paper, and this is my first section, I want to frame this paper by reflecting a little further on the observation with which I opened concerning the relationship between the task of biblical studies and dogmatics. And what I seek to do here is to highlight some of the key differences that distinguish Bart's approach to the text, for example, of Romans, from much or even most current biblical scholarship including that of figures who see their work as of immediate theological relevance. Uh, I'm not going to speak of particular scholars, but those who know the field will recognize the figures I have in mind, I suspect. Bart's reading of scripture, both in the revised Romans commentary and in his subsequent dogmatic writings, embodies the regular fide principle of the fathers, albeit in a particularly radicalized way. What is too easily dismissed by his critics in biblical studies as poor exegesis is so only because the concept of exegesis itself has become a particular thing in modernity, something I've elsewhere likened to fracking. Apply the right machinery with the right methodology and the meaning will be straightforwardly extracted from the text ready for application. The text, the task, is effectively naturalized by this, even when its practitioners claim a commitment to the transcendence of God. For the truth under study is in principle available to all who will practice good method. It yields to the competent subject. Methodological naturalism can be practiced even by those who avow that they are theists. For Bart, however, the reading subject can never master the text and extract its good from it. Rather, the reading subject is held to account by the text, understood to embody the word of God that meaningfully renders truth only by the presence of its own speaking subject. Listening and not fracking is the appropriate task for the one who encounters the word. I nearly gave the title to a paper at a recent conference as What the Frack, but I decided that that might not be appropriate, and I probably should stop sharing that story. Um, Bart also recognizes the need to listen to the local text as something contextualized within the canon of Holy Scripture. In fact, a major part of Bart's legacy to biblical scholarship is the movement often labeled as 
canon interpretation or canonical interpretation associated with figures like Brevard Childs, Walter Moberly, and Chris Seitz. That movement pushes back critically on the biblical theology movement of the early to mid 20th century, which continues to be influential in many families of contemporary scholarship. Within this, the concept of canon is denuded of its true theological significance and becomes little more than an equivalent term for the body of literature that coherently renders a salvation history. The theological meaning of the word, which delimits a body of literature acknowledged to function in a particular way to render Jesus Christ the word of God, is effectively reduced to that of a controlling storyline that is critical to the good method to which the text will always yield its singular meaning. For Bart, however, the operation of canon in the interpretive task is not about lining up a temporal narrative and reading the local text within that timeline. Rather, the framing context of the canon of scripture always calls to account the one who reads its parts by an assertion that the living voice speaks there as well as here, in Leviticus as well as in Galatians, and that the one who is rendered in each is the same God. The coherence of the canon is not a function of unified storyline, but a function of the singular speaking subject of the word of God, to whom the whole bears witness. Uh, as an aside, there are some interesting parallels with Jewish reading strategies, but I won't go there. Bart feels the pressure of the canon scope himself. He can't bypass the story of God's dealings with Israel and his instruction to them in Torah in his account of God. But neither can he comprehend those stories apart from the mystery of revelation constituted in the person of Jesus Christ. And that mystery is not just the finally disclosed outcome of salvation history, controlled in its significance by the steps that have prepared its way. It is the truth that is always operative, but has only now been revealed. The substance of the relationship between creator and creation. Uh, to repeat another of my personal cliches, this is a Kaiser Soze mystery. One that demands that the whole movie is understood differently, becomes indeed an entirely new movie, even though its particulars remain the same because we're dealing with the intersectional reality of a God who is a say and a temporal creation contingent upon him that includes the flesh united to the Logos. In that intersection, things get, in the words of the good doctor, it's Doctor Who, uh, timey-wimey. Uh, our linear notions of time become complicated when an eternal God and temporal creatures intersect. Barrett's interpretation, of course, involves a radical commitment to the controlling priority of Christology in the, the in the theological and interpretive task. This is not static, but is one that develops, even from the major break that occurs between the first Romans commentary and its revisions. In the revised Roman commentaries, it can have a somewhat abstract quality at times associated with futurity. Subsequent developments in Bart's thought were increasingly attentive to the place of the creature in the revelatory act of self-giving, the sarcos of Jesus Christ, the scriptures, and the human act of preaching all functioned to give particular substance to God's revelation, although the first has priority over the others. Now, Bart's application and development of this Christocentric and Christomorphic principle draws critically upon the tradition at every turn. He is steeped in the tradition and appropriates, reformulates, and sometimes rejects its categories constantly. And point by point, the validity of his interpretation is to be measured self-consciously by the quality of his Christology. For biblical scholars who engage with Bart, this needs to be taken seriously and with a humble awareness of our own formational limitations. Many who are enamored of Bart's moves, and for that matter, many who are critical of them, respond to the perceived qualities and deficiencies in ways that are marred by the modern fragmentation of the disciplines, especially in biblical studies, where training and formation in theology is typically minimal. 
Our responses are often those of the curious and not the studious. We land on surfaces and don't press into the real substance because we lack Bart's own attention to the tradition, to its resources and to its problems. The prioritization of Christology, after all, is a characteristic move within modernity, as Dalforth has noted. The question is whether the Christology in question can be sustained as true theology. How we understand our life, thought and worship is inseparable from this, is indeed a function of this. Bart's recognition that ethics is dogmatics de uh, demands then a critical interrogation of the interpreter, including Bart himself, which allows the canon to exert its uncomfortable pressure upon us and demands that our interpretation is rightly governed by our theology, our God talk, which can never be anything contrary to Christ's talk. It challenges us to reflect on how truly dogmatic our dogmatic truly dogmatic our dogmatics are. So, to idolatry. And I've titled this section, for what it's worth, For All the Gods Are Idols Dumb, which is a quote from the Psalms, Subjects, Objects, and the Reality Void. Bart's account of idolatry recognizes that it presents in both religious and irreligious forms, manifest within the lives of communities of faith, communities of non-faith, and indeed, communities of the faith. While the term idolatry is not identical in significance to the term sin, or to the related terms that might be used of this, transgression and so on, idolatry is effectively equivalent to these and properly identifies the issue of worship that is always and everywhere at stake. So as Bart says, the transgression of the first commandment inevitably involves that of all others. That's from the first volume of the Digmatics. Hence, the problem that is manifest in, for example, licentiousness is the same as the one manifest in the works-oriented pursuit of righteousness, leaving to one side for the time being what that term might label. Both are idolatry of sorts, both are bad worship of sorts. And it's noteworthy that Bart's equating of idolatry and sin is itself an interpretation of the Decalogue. Now it's crucial to Bart's thought on the matter that such idolatry has a subjective and not an objective origin. And indeed, that the object is an idol only because we have made it one. This is not to diminish the reality of the idol as idol, but to acknowledge that this status does not proceed from a property or a quality intrinsic to the thing in question. The thing really is an idol, a recipient of real, if false, worship. But that reality emerges from the agency of the idolatrous subjects at work. In terms of Bart's homartiology, this acknowledges that the idolhood of the thing, its status as an evil, must properly be identified as a manifestation of nothingness, of das Nichtige. It must be affirmed as a nothing, as a participant in that which God has not actively willed for its power to be identified and described appropriately and for the operation of its antidote to be described properly. Hence, throughout the opening chapters of the Romans commentary, Bart equates the worship of the idol with the praise of the no God, the ascription of God's status to that which simply is not God. Underpinning this is Bart's central emphasis on the infinite, qualitative distinction between God and his creation, drawn from Kierkegaard, and the recognition that true and genuine revelation can only ever be a giving of God's self across the gap. The knowledge of the transcendent God and the presence of the transcendent God cannot be separated. Any identification of God that is immediately perceived within the creaturely realm is an ascription of Godness to something that is not God. If this reading of Romans, occurring uh, against the background of the theology that Bart comes to reject, is the key to his account of idolatry, it's a reading that's informed by the wider canon, even if the relevant texts are not always cited. The contrast between the God who is God and the gods erected by men rests in Isaiah, for example, in the same divine self-identification that is taken up on the lips of Jesus 
in John's Gospel, Anihu, ego me, I am, I, even I am. They, however, these things that you worship, are not. They are nothings. Barrett's understanding of the idol is a corollary of his account of Revelation. The idol is treated as an immediate source of the knowledge of God. The characteristic mark of an idol, indeed, is immediacy. Knowable as an object. The idolatrous subject thus ascribes to this thing, a part of the creaturely realm, something proper only to God himself, as the qualitatively other, knowable only by his intentional self-disclosure, which is never anything other than a giving of himself as an act of presence. Properly, God cannot be known as an object, but only as the subject of knowledge. Our knowledge of him is a function of his knowledge of himself, into which we are brought as participants. William Brennan has recently argued that there is some sense of development from the revised uh, Romans commentary uh, to the church dogmatics and uh, through the Gottingen uh, dogmatics, with these allowing for a species of analogia entis. There are qualities of God, this is a quote from the Gottingen dogmatics, there are qualities of God of which we may see obscure vestiges analogies and similar effects in the creature, for example, God's life, wisdom, will, power, and goodness. The elements of the creator's creation correspond to forms present in the creator himself and can be perceived as such. But even these correspondences are subject to the noetic effects of sin. Any possibility of a natural theology that might be warranted by correspondences is nullified by the sinful mind. Even when things are analogous to God, perhaps especially when they are so, the idolatrous mind will terminate on their properties and believe that it thereby knows what God is like. Now, this account of idolatry involves a unified understanding of the problem of sin, but it doesn't obliterate the distinctions between objects and their roles within it. Arguably, at least, Bart can speak differently about gods, idols, and demons. Gods and idols are created things that are subject to the manifestation of nothingness by the human being who confers the quality of an idol to them and thus makes them participants in the demonic, the realization of nothingness within the world. Uh, this, I should say, is a modified appropriation of one of the core claims that, that Brennan makes. The point is that the idleness of the idol is a function of human subjectivity and not of the thing being idolized. Now, there is a real question, I think, to be considered about whether idolatry should be diagnosed principally through the categories of revelation and knowledge, uh, even if that's where its solution lies, and whether the weight of Bart's emphasis on the revelatory, particularly conceived in epistemic terms, might place limits on his analysis of idolatry. We might constructively allow the appetitive dimension of idolatry to function alongside the epistemic. Idolatry is not simply a matter of the self accomplishing a specious knowledge of God, but of the self seeking self-subsistency and thereby sharing in the delusion that it has power over the world. Those who worship Baal think that their performance of rituals will ensure that he acts in favor of the liturgist. Those who worship Mammon think that earthly currency will give them control of their own futures. Those who worship bodies think that their enjoyment of pleasure can be an end in itself for them to enjoy. Those who worship God by their own works think that by those works they can expect God to act towards them in ways that they have control. What Adam and Eve are led to expect in the garden is not so much easy knowledge of God, but a self-subsistency in which they will be like God knowing the difference between good and evil. Their perceptions of the tree and its temptation are rendered in sensory and appetitive terms. Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. This isn't a rejection of Bart's own critical emphasis on revelation but a caution that we must place it within a further set of observations about how idolatry and magic work that involve our appetites. 
that's certainly there in Barth, and we'll come to that in just a moment, but it perhaps needs to be more conspicuous in our own theology. This recognition is important too for the right identification of the relationship between belief and unbelief. Unbelief is an active participation in, in nothingness. That observation allows us to see that the same problem is at work in the unbelief of the religious self as the irreligious self. In turn, this allows Bart some subtlety in his treatment of scripture and within it of Torah or the law. It is a created thing that properly received can, can participate in the embodiment of divine revelation. It is, in Paul's words, good and spiritual. But it's received by selves who are sold as slaves to sin, by subjects who will typically use it idolatrously. And in particular, the temptation to see God as revealed immediately by the Torah, or as bound to the will of those who observe Torah, constitute acts of idolatry, whereby the holiness of scripture is misapprehended by the mind blinded by sin. The holiness of scripture is ascribed as a property to scripture itself and is not properly recognized to be a function of its subordinate relationship to the doctrine of the God who makes himself known redemptively. So, third, idolatry in Paul. Once we recognize the elements of Bart's account of idolatry, and particularly the place of subjectivity in generating idolhood, its value as a reading of Paul can be recognized. Now, I mean by this that it's at once a successful interpretation of the detail encountered in the texts and a helpful basis for further reflection upon how these are to be related to each other and to other parts of the canon. So let me turn for a little while to exploring its contours in Romans, noting along the way some of the elements of Bart's reading as reflected in the revised Romans commentaries. Now, for the sake of structure, I'm going to leave to one side for the moment the essentially positive entry point of the reader into Paul's account of the gospel in Romans. I'll note simply what others have rightly stressed, including Bart himself, that Paul's understanding of the problem of sin's falsehood is made possible only by the truth of revelation. That's there in Romans 1, 1 to 6. That revelation discloses God's essential opposition, his wrath, to all ungodliness and unrighteousness, a Sebian kai adikian. Read in terms of Bart's account, the significance of these alpha privatives should be obvious. These are non-entities, non-godliness and non-righteousness. They are reified only by the agency of their sources, from whom, importantly, they are derived genitively. For these non-entities are of humans who by or in non-righteousness suppress the truth. Now, two points I think are worth noting here. First, humans are the acting subjects of truth suppression. The genitival structure identifies anthropon with ton katechonton. Humans are suppressors of truth and from them emerges non-godliness and non-righteousness. Second, non-righteousness, adikia, occurs on both sides of the genitive structure. The non-righteousness to which God is opposed is that of humans who suppress the truth in non-righteousness. This relationship between the non-entity of non-righteousness and the agency of the human subject is interestingly explored in Matthew Crosman's recent study of Emergence in Paul, which identifies sin to be a person whose existence supervenes upon the agency of the individuals who enact it, but who is also capable of exercising downward causality, thereby becoming more than merely supervenient, but truly and personally emergent. Uh, it's no longer I who act but sin living in me acts. That is, sinners act and their agency gives rise to a thing we can personally identify as sin. But as that person comes into being, 
he shapes the agency of those from whom he emerges. Now, Barrett himself doesn't place such weight upon the alpha privatives as I have here, but set within his broader discussion of Romans 1, this is clearly in line with his own reading. They are manifestations of the turn to the no God, nicht God, and the religion that accompanies it. What follows in Romans 1 may be seen as an outworking of this essentially subject-driven account of idolatry. They, and plural forms of autos are used repeatedly, did not honour God or make him the object of thanksgiving, but became futile thinkers, defined by the void at the focal point of their worshipful attention. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the semblances of mortal men or birds or animals or reptiles. Here, the substitution theme that is so prominent in Bart, by which we substitute something created for the truth of revelation, is rendered in Paul in language evocative of the opening chapters of Genesis, not read as etiological, but as paradigmatic. Adam and Eve do what all Adams do. They take the divinely appointed gifts of creation and thinking themselves to be wise in themselves or hungering for such wisdom, they turn those gifts to foolish ends. God's response to this, at least as it is represented in these verbs, in these verses rather, is simply that he gave them over. The destructive power of idolatry remains a function of its idolatrous subjects. Bart's reading of this giving over to lusts extends the passionate or erotic here identified to the whole of life, including religious life. Everything then becomes libido. Life becomes totally erotic. And here I think Bart's language reflects much more the point I made earlier. Idolatry is not simply about knowledge, but about gratification, about the self that hungers for self-subsistency in its own terms. Now, if we see the movement from Romans 1 to Romans 2, which shifts to a discussion of the status of the Jew and the Gentile and the place of the law in defining this status, as an extension of this discussion of idolatry, rather than as a discussion of the law in itself, then the flow of Paul's thought might, I think, be better appreciated than it often is. Personally, I don't feel that the presence of wrath here can be escaped by ascribing it to the viewpoint of a rhetorical opponent and as an argument that Doug, Douglas, uh, of course, has developed. For my part, I feel constrained to affirm uh, as I think Bart does, the emphasis on God's wrath, but to do so in ways that are aligned to the content of the gospel itself. To understand this as a declaration of God's settled opposition to that which is no God is, I think, appropriate. The movement from Romans 1 to 3 is one in which Paul comes to see that the problem of idolatrousness is not simply a Gentile one, but a human one in which the law is good in itself but powerless and always subject to our tendency to idolize. There is no one righteous, not even one. And that's less, I think, a statement of forensic culpability than an identification of idolatry's extent and God's verdict upon it. Paul and his fellows are no less afflicted by this sickness than are the Gentiles. The difference for them is how such idolatry manifests itself when the created good of the Torah is to hand, that they are without excuse or defense, need not be a matter of forensic judgment, but simply moral evaluation. The practice of idolatry is always and everywhere indefensible. Within Paul's wider body of writing, this subjective account of idolatry is linked also to his use of the word flesh, sarks. Whatever else might be said about this word, it clearly represents the problem of sin as something constitutional to its subjects. It's part of us. It's in our bones, in our neurons, in our appetites. As the subjects of religious and non-religious activities, we are fleshly agents, participants in a reality that cannot be transformed on its own terms. And if Bart's language in his treatment of this sometimes sounds starkly dualistic, it's because of his insistence on the absolute qualitative distinction between God and creation. The exchange of the incorruptible 
glory of God for the corruptible fails to observe the frontier, the grenze, between God and man. As such, its attempts to talk of God and serve God, its attempts at worship become defined by the corruptibility of the creation. The relationship between the flesh and the stoichea by which it is enslaved is clear. And approaching that relationship in these terms of idolatry allows us, I think, to negotiate one of the debates in biblical scholarship in a somewhat more agile way. Whatever the appropriate background to the term stoichea elements that Paul uses, whatever that background might be and whatever its precise translational equivalent, its real significance lies in the idolater's mode of being within the creation and their generation of an idol reality and no God from its elements. This becomes identified with the figure of sin represented in personal terms, a reality that we have reified and that in turn exercises its causality upon us. Crucially though, this is not the causality of a third realm. Heaven and hell do not war over earth. The apparent dualism in Bart's language concerns the creaturely and the creator. Sin is a creaturely thing, emerging from the creature's confusion of the corruptible and the incorruptible. It will only ever accomplish the non-righteousness of the worship of the no God. The only prospect for deliverance is the invasive presence of God at key points described by Bart as the nearness. Now, I might add another aside here to explain why I've been so preoccupied through much of my career with challenging certain forms of Adam Christology, including in the work of a former colleague. This reading of the problem, Bart's reading of the problem, articulated in Romans 1 and developed through Romans 3, which is vital to the proper understanding of the soteriology articulated by Paul, demands a recognition that the glory of the immortal God that has been exchanged is a property of God himself, even if one that is communicated to or shared with worshippers who are thereby glorified. It's a property proper to the divine side of the absolute qualitative gap. Most Adam Christologies, in certain ways, identify the glory that is lost with the fall as a property of the protoplast himself, associated immediately, directly, with the Imago Dei, given a certain quasi-independent form. Christ's glory is seen as a recovery of an authentically human property, perhaps associated with the fulfillment of human vocation, as in Wright's account, rather than as an alien reality that is communicated to the worshipper, as in Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. While I've questioned much of the historical evidence that ancient Jews read Genesis this way, which is uh, often quoted by the advocates of Adam Christology, the issue that much more sharply drives my concern is the theological one. It seems to me to represent precisely a form of the exchange that Bart sees to be essentially idolatrous. Now, I've touched on this already, but we can now note the core point concerning the Torah. Bart's account allows us to see the real force of Paul's language concerning the law in Romans 7. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, just, and good. Uh, that is, it's properly described using adjectives properly used of God himself, from whose qualities it derives its own characteristics. The law is spiritual, it's pneumaticos, it's characterized by pneuma, by God's intentional and active opposition to know God and its fleshly servants. The problem lies with the viciously contrastive reality of the ego, who is however to this. Ego de sarknos emi, but I am fleshly. Romans 7 famously is dense with first-person singulars. It's an account of the vicious subject who is religious, who sincerely loves the law, but who has come to see that he loves it viciously and for whom it manifests nothing but the power of nothingness because it has become isolated from the true revelation of God. 
comprehended anew in the light of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the one who delivers from this body of death. The goodness of the law can be affirmed, but only as it participates in God's act of self-disclosure. Well, this leads us in the final part of the paper to the question of whether right worship is possible for the creature, and if so, how and in what forms. A different way of articulating this uh, is to ask whether we can enjoy God's presence or nearness in ways that may be enjoyed by him. While Barrett is always cautious to frame his reading of Paul in ways that remind his own readers of their native idolatrousness, he's also much more insistent than some might recognize that the work of the Spirit makes possible substantively, if not perfectly, truthful worship. His treatment of this is pressurized by the language of Romans 8 and Romans 12, where real change, metamorphosis, appears to be demanded. The character of the change remains colored by Barth's preferred ways of speaking about the qualitative gap. As he spoke of the problem idolatry as a confusion of that gap in which the distance between God and man no longer had its, its essential, sharp, acid, and disintegrating ultimate significance, so now Barth's account of the veritable act of worship is one in which the idolatrous uh, in which idolatrous thinking is rightly dissolved by the acid presence of the qualitatively different God. Nevertheless, he says, there is an act of thinking to which a promise is attached, an act of thinking which, because it dissolves both itself and every act, is identical with the veritable worship of God, with utter bowed adoration of him. There's an act of thinking which, because it is perfected, and therefore as an act dissolved, constitutes approving what is the will of God. There is an act of thinking by which sufficient wisdom is given men to choose the road that is for the moment the right road. There is, and this is what we mean, a thinking of the thought of grace, of resurrection, of forgiveness, and of eternity. Now the specific words vary, but the thought is parallel. To be in God's presence is to be unmade, dissolved or changed, and vitally, thereby to participate meaningfully in the thought of grace. Such thinking is a function of divine gift. When he engages with Romans 8, Bart grapples with the representation of the spirit and the experience of the human being who seeks to know and to serve God rightly. Now, my own sense is that his treatment here is under-attentive to the significance of the soon-prefixed words used throughout the passage, which crucially imply a shared subjectivity of the verbs and nominal conditions of the life of faith. We are co-crucified with Christ, we are co-heirs with him. The spirit, at once identified as Christ's spirit and the spirit of the one who raised him from the dead, co-witnesses with our spirit that we are the sons of God, who do not simply emulate or imitate, but actively participate in Christ's own cry of Abba, Father. The Spirit's work doesn't assume cognitive self-awareness on our part. When we do not know what to pray, he intercedes with groans that cannot be articulated in words, the meaning of which we do not need to comprehend for God to comprehend them, for they are indeed his words. They belong to the deep things of God which the Spirit searches. This perhaps is within the orbit of what Bart meant when he spoke of a thinking of the thought of grace. But my own sense in reading the Romans commentary, particularly on chapter eight, is that he's always concerned to caution against the idolatrous move, perhaps, just perhaps, in a way that underplays the joyous possibility of enjoying the true worship of God. Why he does so is entirely understandable, given his contexts, but the possibility must still, I think, be positively affirmed. Um, and my own, own affirmation as we move on will necessarily take us beyond the details of Romans and to some extent beyond the details of Paul and into some of the wider emphases of the scriptural witness. Now core to this is the representation of Jesus as the true icon of God. This identification is found in 2 Corinthians 2.4, picked up and developed in Colossians 1.15 1, and following where interestingly, it becomes entangled with traditional Jewish ways of speaking about wisdom 
as the ordering reality of creation. Uh, these are, in later Judaism, further entangled with ways of speaking about the Torah as providing the schematic diagram for the cosmos. Jesus is the icon of God, through whom we are given access to the transformational revelation of God's being. It's his glory that we reflect, and it's into his likeness that we will be transformed. Uh, in interesting ways, this actually picks up on an element in the Jewish affirmation of the infinite qualitative distinction, where Adam and Eve are represented as being made in the likeness of the image, a genitive chain intended to protect the divine uniqueness from any infringement uh, by the human analogy. It allows that there may be some particular image that occupies a mediating place between God and those who are only prepositionally associated with his image, who are not, in other words, the image itself. Now, this interpretive move is, of course, also found in the fathers, notably in Athanasius, for whom humans have merely a share in the image. Jesus and Jesus alone is the image. Importantly, too, this is not a labeling of the pre-existent son, because it's a label attached to the firstborn of all creation, that is, one who is properly spoken of in creaturely terms. It's a labeling of Jesus Christ, who was born some 2,000 years ago, and in whom all things have always held together. To quote Dr. Who again, that's timey-wimey, and it's precisely the opposite of the Adam Christology found in much New Testament scholarship. But the icon is not simply the proper object of our worshipful attention. Crucially, those who are united to Christ the icon share in Paul's declaration, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That is to say, the subject of their lives, their ego, is no longer the same. Paul has not been effaced. He still writes as Paul and he still writes to named recipients whose names are listed as fellow workers in the gospel, fellow servants of Christ. Now, however, he perceives his subjectivity in terms governed by his union with Christ, realized by the presence of the Spirit who is identified specifically as the Spirit of the Son sent into our hearts in the fullness of time. The true icon then is simultaneously the object and the subject of true worship. And Paul really enjoys this. Absent Jesus Christ from either side of the act of true worship, and there is no possibility of true worship. I've noted elsewhere that we need to be particularly attentive in Paul's representation of this altered subjectivity to his choice of the verb stoicheo, in Galatians 5.25, to represent the believer's alignment with Christ's spirit. Etymologically, the word is connected to stoicheia, those elements to which our flesh is enslaved. Both are associated with the idea of elements in a system, whether a mathematical system or the periodic table. The verb, though, is particularly used in the context of military activity, the way that members of a regiment are expected to act in unity. The form of the verb that Paul uses is a first-person plural subjunctive. We are the subjects of this verb. We are the ones expected to march in time to the Spirit. When we do this, when we stoich to the leading of the Spirit, we will be free from the flesh that is enslaved to the stoicheia. And of course, when we do so, we will be fruitful with the fruits of the Spirit, which are joy and peace. Paul's use of military language here is paralleled by his use of athletic training imagery elsewhere. I don't run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body and enslaving it and enslave it. It's paralleled also by his use of mortification as a category for sanctification. Crucially, this language is recast within his account of Christomorphic pneumatic subjectivity. We are to mortify, to put to death the old man by disrobing ourselves of him, of our self-subsistent identity, something that can be done only by putting on the new man. And the new man is not a renewed version of ourselves, a better and morally improved version, but is Jesus Christ himself. We can only serve Christ the King 
by clothing ourselves with Christ the servant, something made real by the presence of his spirit. Now this brings me finally and briefly to the category of fittingness. In his, um, in his recent study of Paul and the gift, John Barclay has noted that Paul's emphasis on the giving of the gift to those who are not fitting recipients of it is actually a radical transformation of the concept of gift giving in the ancient world, contrary to those who assume that the language of gift or grace intrinsically negates a sense of the recipient's worth. He's also highlighted that Paul represents the gift as bringing about a fittingness in its recipients that's not their own natural property, but is a corollary of the gift itself. It remains radically alien, yet is genuinely transformational. What I want to highlight here is that this fittingness is represented by Paul and his writers in the wider New Testament using cultic or liturgical language, which for someone steeped in Jewish praxis and text has a certain set of associations with the concept of divine presence. Paul speaks of believers as hagioi, as those who have been sanctified. He'll describe them as those who have been washed and cleansed. Such language is most densely associated with both the things and the people who are involved in the service of God in the temple. For Paul, despite his rejection of the way of thinking of purity as defined by the works of the law, this continues to be an appropriate conceptuality for the fittingness of the believer whose fit fittingness is precisely for presence. The same, contextuality, the same conceptuality is at work in his designation of both the individual and the community as the temple of God, whose moral purity is expected as a corollary of the status they enjoy. We will not become a temple once our moral life is sorted out. We are the temple and hence need to sort our moral life out. We will not accomplish union with the spirit once we stop our pernea. We are united to the spirit and unite him to our pernea. The ethical imperative then is a function of the dogmatic indicative or as Bart puts it, ethics is dogmatics. <clears throat>